Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, Ontario's Integrity Commissioner and Auditor General have begun investigations into the Ontario government's plans to develop parts of the Greenbelt. Doug Ford is leading the charge on petitioning the federal government on bail reform following the death of an OPP officer. And last week, just seven months after winning re-election, Kitchener Centre MPP Laura May Lindo announced she's leaving politics. She's here with us today to tell us why. It's January 24th, 2023, so let's get to it. Well, partner, just when you thought it was safe to go back into the audio booth together, <laughs> you're not here. Uh, you are home in your soundproof closet. Tell the good people why, Mr. McGrath. Uh, yeah, after uh, a three-year, uh, almost three-year run of uh, avoiding the uh, novel coronavirus, uh, not so novel anymore, uh, <laughs> it, it arrived in my household uh, last weekend. So I am deciding not to get all of my colleagues infected. And uh, so we are recording remotely like the bad old days. <laughs> now, to be clear, you have not tested positive yet, right? I have not tested positive. I, I, I am feeling some of the symptoms of COVID and my wife did test very, very positive. Uh, so <laughs> I am just assuming that I got a bum test and I am in fact uh, infectious or infected at least. <laughs> well, maybe both. Yeah. I've always found your personality infectious as well. But uh, this reminds me of the, the line that uh, David Williams used to use all the time, which is, out of an abundance of caution, Mr. McGrath has decided to stay home, stay in his broom closet, and do the Unpoly podcast from there. So we're all grateful. Thank you. Yeah, I think it might come up if I made Steve Pakin sick. <laughs> <laughs> well, as people may be able to hear, I could do a really good impression of Brian Mulroney right now. Because uh, I was outdoors in the snow yesterday for a little bit too long, and uh, as a result, I think I got a little something happening here. But it's not COVID. This is a good old-fashioned cold. Anyways, listeners will also know that we have uh, begun taking questions and discussion prompts from our audience off the top here. A reminder, anybody can do this emailing us at onpolitics at tvo.org. JMM, what have we got up this week on that front? Uh, we have a nice comment and prompt from listener Joan Martin. She writes about our last newsletter that it was, quote, an interesting and useful analysis of Ontario's chief medical officer of health's position in relation to the Ford government. It would be worthwhile to read the response of the NDP and Liberals to this article. Thank you. Uh, what do you think their thoughts are on uh, the vetting of the chief medical officer's news releases, Steve? I think we can, I don't think we have to do much speculation uh, to find out about that. Our newsletter that Joan's referring to uh, dealt with the fact that uh, the medical officer of health in Ontario right now uh, has acknowledged that his press releases are how do we want to put this delicately? Not free from political interference. Now, how nefarious that political interference is, we don't really know. But suffice to say, uh, the premier's office gets a once over anytime the medical officer of health puts a release out there. And uh, I don't know that people knew that. And when we pointed that out to people, well, let's just say uh, you'd like to think you're getting the absolute straight healthcare goods from the medical officer of health free from any political interference. And if there is any political interference, I think that would be problematic. And I think the opposition would say so. 
Again, if you'd like to ask about any of the content on the show, please email us at onpoliticsattvo.org. Now, on to issue one. So we're going to keep pushing and we're going to keep looking for every opportunity we can to halt this deal. Uh, it, it smells really fishy. And, uh, but it's also at the end of the day, you know, I mean, fundamentally, what is this about? This is about the people of Ontario. This is about their land. That's the incoming NDP leader, Marit Stiles, waving a red flag about the Greenbelt, the massive land north of Toronto that was created by Dalton McGuinty's government to be hands-off development, so to speak. Some weeks ago, the current government of Ontario took some land out of the Greenbelt, they put some other land into the Greenbelt, essentially permitting housing development on land where it was previously not allowed. Stiles finds the whole thing very fishy. She asked various provincial authorities to investigate the matter, and in fact, that's what's happening now. The Integrity Commissioner and the Auditor General are looking into this, so let's do a deeper dive on this. JMM. We're going to start from first principles here. What's the mission of the Integrity Commissioner? Uh, the Integrity Commissioner has a few different jobs uh, in legislation, but the one that matters for our purposes today is that J. David Wake uh, is responsible for investigating whether any MPPs have broken the provisions of the Members' Integrity Act. And in this case, the MPP in question is the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, Steve Clark, who's being investigated. What question is the Commissioner investigating? Uh, well, actually, the, the Commissioner hasn't been super specific about uh, what the scope of his investigation is. That's not uh, unusual uh, in cases like this. But he is uh, basically investigating whether Clark or anybody in Clark's office violated provisions of the Act that uh, prevent MPPs from what's called inappropriately furthering somebody's private interests or providing information to someone that could have inappropriately furthered their private interests. And in this case, what is the specific allegation? Uh, the specific allegation is that Clark or someone in his office gave a heads up to uh, certain developers in York Region that lands were being removed from the Greenbelt and would be newly available for development and that the developers then in turn bought up those lands before there was a, uh, a knowledge of the change in policy. And what is the potential evidence that Stiles and others are pointing to that they believe warrants this investigation? Well, the timing is one of the big things. These developers just coincidentally happened to have purchased land that was in the Greenbelt shortly before that land was taken out. Uh, in theory, I suppose it's possible that this is all a coincidence. They could have also simply been making a bet uh, that with a, a newly re-elected uh, progressive conservative government, uh, and Doug Ford had previously talked about modifying the Green Belt uh, back before the Tories were elected. They could have simply been gambling that this was the kind of thing that the government was going to reevaluate and make those uh, lands available for development. Uh, but the opposition uh, wants an investigation, has asked for an investigation into whether it's possible the developers got a heads up from Clark or from his office. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously, if it is proven to be true, and I, I guess we should emphasize that so far none of these allegations have been proven, either in court or anywhere else, uh, that uh, you know, if it were true, that would be very problematic. Now, I mentioned earlier it was Marit Stiles plus others 
who asked for the Integrity Commissioner to investigate. Who else? Uh, in fact, all three opposition parties uh, co-signed a request for an investigation. Uh, the Styles, on behalf of the NDP, which we'll just remind our listeners, she's not formally the leader of yet, though the party seems to be treating her as such. Uh, John Fraser, the interim leader of the Liberals, and Mike Schreiner, uh, really, I guess of the three of them, the only one who's currently a permanent leader in his own right, uh, Mike Schreiner, leader of the Greens. Now, uh, I'm glad you mentioned this because this is an interesting development because, of course, much of the time, these three parties are in competition with themselves as much as they are with the progressive conservatives who are in government. So the fact that they have come together on this is somewhat noteworthy. Okay, so the Integrity Commissioner is going to investigate. Give us a sense of what the potential outcomes could be once this investigation is over. One potential outcome is that the Integrity Commissioner finds no wrongdoing or at least no clear-cut breach of the Act. Uh, The Integrity Commissioner is supposed to keep pretty close to the text of the law and uh, he's supposed to be very careful. He can't make just a, a, a wild allegation in the text. So, you know, the commissioner is really trying to answer a very specific, narrow legal question, and he might find that whatever the truth of Clark's uh, conduct or the conduct of people in Clark's office, that it doesn't rise to the level of a true uh, breach of the law. Uh, if he does find wrongdoing, then there are a few different options. There are a number of different penalties that he can uh, advise MPPs to take in relation to the breach, anything from a censure motion in the House, uh, all the way potentially to vacating Steve Clark's seat and you know, essentially forcing a by-election. Even further than that, if the Integrity Commissioner finds uh, evidence that rises to the level of potentially criminal misconduct, uh, and this is a scenario that is envisioned in the law, he's actually supposed to suspend his investigation, hand the information over to the police, then basically not do anything until the police have concluded their investigation one way or the other. Okay, that is the integrity commissioner. We also mentioned that the auditor general is also doing an investigation separate from the Integrity Commissioner 1. So what's her role here? Well, and this is interesting in, in a few ways because I think it has the potential to be more damaging to the government. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, the Integrity Commissioner is looking at a pretty narrow legal question. The Auditor General is able to look at a broader question and was asked to look at both the fiscal impacts of allowing development on these lands, right? Uh, and you may recall, the Ford government also gave the Auditor General the role of looking at the environmental impact Acts, uh, by transferring the office of the environmental commissioner to uh, the auditor general's office. So Bonnie Lissick, uh, in her last year in office, will have the role of both evaluating the financial and environmental impacts here. As I say, it's, it's a much broader window to look at things from. And because she's not going to be looking at the narrow question of was a specific law broken, in some ways, I mean, it could be more damaging, right? She could find all sorts of things, again, in theory, she could find all sorts of things that do not rise to the level of law-breaking, do not rise to the level of criminal misconduct, but could still be deeply embarrassing to the government. Now, I remember 50 years ago when Woodward and Bernstein of the Washington Post were investigating the Watergate break-in, etc., Deep Throat, their anonymous source, said follow the money. So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to follow the money. Let's put some dollar figures on this. If the land in the Greenbelt were not developable 
and remained in the green belt, it would obviously be worth a lot less than if the land were taken out of the green belt and homes could be built on that land. How much less? Got a guess? Uh, it's difficult to know for sure because this land has been you know, out of the market for so long. It's not even really easy to find a, a comparable uh, land figure uh, to, to compare it to. 20 years ago, for example, some land near Pickering was uh, sold by the Ontario government to uh, local farmers for $4,000 an acre. Uh, Victor Doyle, uh, who was one of the lead planners for the Greenbelt Plan, uh, said that, that land, uh, if it is now developable, is now worth a half a million dollars uh, per acre. So more than a hundred times increase. And, you know, that for Greenfield, developable land, you know, close to the GTA. I can't swear that that number is perfectly correct, but it seems plausible to me. Okay, JMM, one more word on this. If the Auditor General finds malfeasance here, what can she do about it? You know, these are officers of the legislature, so they don't have, uh, you know, power in their own right to impose penalties. They can expose uh, problems, they can expose misconduct, but it's up to the government and the legislature to actually uh, decide on penalties. Uh, You know, I mentioned uh, Steve Clark potentially having his seat vacated. That would only happen if the majority of MPPs in the legislature uh, voted to do that. Uh, I don't have to tell our listeners that a majority of MPPs are progressive conservatives in the current legislature, so uh, I don't think that is going to happen. Uh, If either of them, uh, the Integrity Commissioner or the Auditor General, find uh, evidence of a serious misconduct, something that would uh, rise to the level of a a criminal investigation, uh, they can refer that information to the OPP and uh, they can investigate. It's not a perfect system in that sense. they, as I say, they don't have the power to impose their own penalties, but they they do have the ability to put a spotlight on these kinds of things. And of course, there's a higher authority, and that would be the voters, who at the next election may decide that if the integrity commissioner didn't, or the auditor didn't, or the politicians didn't, or the OPP didn't, they may have a say in this matter as well. The people always get the final say. It's the good thing about the system. <laughs> That's right. On to issue two. I always believe in the tragedy when the OPP officer was uh, murdered, and there's limited stuff I can say because it's in front of the courts, but the federal government needs to change uh, the laws. They have to change the bill reform. Last week, Canada's Premier sent a letter to Justin Trudeau calling for immediate action on fixing the bail system after OPP officer Constable Greg Pierschala was killed. The letter originated from Doug Ford's office, and it asks for several reforms to the criminal code, which is the federal government's responsibility. JMM, pick up the story here, if you would. Uh, Well, you just mentioned the killing of an OPP officer, which is one obvious uh, impetus for the premiers raising this issue. There have also been some other uh, high-profile violent crimes in Toronto recently committed by people who were out on bail. Conservative politicians have panned the current system as a, quote, catch-and-release system, but you will be shocked, Steve, to learn that there's some nuances that aren't always getting clearly explained in a fight between the provinces and feds. Uh, I am not shocked to hear that, so (laughs) let's continue. For starters, why is this an argument between the premiers and Ottawa anyway? 
So the criminal code is federal law, and that sets out the basic rules for how someone accused of a crime is to be treated. Uh, the law says that the onus is on prosecutors to prove why someone should be held in jail instead of being released. The premiers in their letter have asked the government to reverse that presumption in cases where someone is accused of a crime with a firearm under sections uh, 95 and 96 of the criminal code. Those are the, the specific sections for dealing with illegal firearms. So if the premiers got their way, it would be up to the accused to prove why they shouldn't be released to the public instead of prosecutors having to prove that they should, in fact, be kept in jail. All right. This so far all seems like it should be incumbent upon the federal government to solve. So how does this become a problem for the provinces? Well, I, I could get into the sort of weird division of powers in the Constitution, but we don't have that kind of time today. So I will simply say that the provinces and feds both have different jobs in what we might call Law and Order Canada edition. Uh, the federal government decides what is and isn't in the criminal code, including bail rules, but provinces have their own police forces and prosecutors that do the lion's share of you know, law enforcement and, and criminal prosecution. Uh, even in provinces where the RCMP is the quote-unquote local police force, it's acting as a contractor for the province. But what's important here is that provincial prosecutors uh, can't ask for bail conditions more severe than what's allowed in the federal law, though they can be less onerous. In fact, back in 2017, under the Ontario Liberals, uh, the government announced a policy to do exactly that, to stop asking for uh, the, the most maximal uh, levels of bail conditions, uh, in part because so many people were being held in provincial jails, it was causing problems for provincial administration. But here's Professor Carolyn Yule from the University of Guelph to expand a bit on the change. So in some sense, the request to expand the reverse owners conditions is not a crazy idea. So on the face of it, it, it does seem like a reasonable request. The problem is, in terms of what the research shows us, it's not really going to improve bail because it's not addressing the key challenges currently preventing the bail system from working as well as it could. Okay, then, what are the challenges preventing the bail system from working? Well, Professor Yule said that there's evidence that the current law gives judges plenty of room for discretion to detain people who they think are dangerous. She also thinks that asking for a change to the criminal code is kind of passing the buck up to the federal level instead of examining changes that could be implemented provincially. Here's Professor Yule again. There have been concerns with the bail system, um, certainly from the academic perspective, for many years. And the focus there has tended to be that the, the bail system actually sets accused up to fail because people are on conditions in the community for too long and they get stuck in this revolving door of justice. We don't move to trials in a reasonably swift way. So there has been concern for some time. Okay, Professor Ewell mentioned what could help improve the system. What are some of her recommendations? She has three recommendations, uh, including speedier justice. It reduces the amount of time that accused people spend in the community before they are either convicted or acquitted. More access to community resources. We know that homelessness, mental health, addiction, trauma are realities for many people on bail. If you don't know where you're going to sleep, from one night to the next. If you have an active addiction, often following bail conditions, your compliance with, with your bail conditions becomes an afterthought because you're focused on sort of on your primary needs. And more data, which is something the bail system sorely needs. So right now the statistics on bail are, are inadequate. 
And if you're going to have sort of evidence-based reform measures, you need to, to, first of all, have good data so that you know what you're what you're dealing with. In moments like these, after an OPP officer has been killed, many people will be asking questions about the bail system. Uh, but Professor Yule says that this change to the criminal code might not actually result in longer-term safety for communities. I absolutely understand the concern on the part of the public um, and the calls by politicians in the wake of high-profile crimes. These are very disturbing events. They're very worrying. So I think it's absolutely legitimate um, and important to sort of say, hey, what's going on with bail? Is this system working? Is it protecting the public? I think the challenge is, though, when we focus on victims and, and, and community safety, and we have these calls for tougher bail measures, to some extent, it allows us to shirk responsibility for dealing with the, the socioeconomic, historical inequalities, structural barriers that contribute to crime. And, you know, we know this, but that simple responses like, you know, reverse onus, focusing on reverse onus is not going to result in longer term safety for communities. So could the feds change the law in the way that the premiers are requesting? You know, Parliament can definitely amend the criminal code, and even the reverse onus the premiers are asking for isn't unheard of. Actually, uh, the 2017 changes that the federal liberal government brought in did also create a a, a reverse onus in bail uh, for people accused of uh, intimate partner violence. So the big question is what the courts would do with it. Uh, It tends to be ignored in these discussions, but people who are accused of a crime, no matter how serious the allegation, they are still innocent of a crime until they are found guilty by a court of law. And I think it's fair to say that the Supreme Court and other Canadian courts have been pretty aggressive in recent decisions about pushing governments to try and bring people to trial more quickly and to minimize the time spent in pretrial custody for exactly that reason. In fact, I mean, the 2017 uh, federal liberal change that I mentioned was directly in response to Supreme Court decisions along these lines. So even if Ottawa under the current prime minister or a different one were to do what the premiers are asking for, I I think, A, we'd very quickly see it challenged in court, and and B, I don't think you could say with a lot of confidence what would happen next. Gotcha. Okay, on to issue three, a new Democrat MPP steps down. Just over a week ago, Laura May Lindo announced with mixed emotions that she would be stepping down as the MPP for Kitchener Centre. Throughout her time at Queen's Park, Laura May brought forward a lens of equity, culminating in her private member's bill, the Racial Equity in the Education Systems Act. And joining us now for more is the aforementioned Laura May Lindo. Laura May, it's great to see you again. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, you said on social media that it's with mixed emotions that you're stepping down. Why mixed emotions? Well, the job is very difficult, but to be in a position where people have entrusted um, you with fighting for them, sometimes when they are at their most vulnerable, like we would get phone calls in our office from um, uh, people whose parents were in long-term care during the pandemic, um, who were begging us to help them and to know that they trusted my office with that kind of work um, 
my heart broke that I wasn't able to move the system inside enough to make somebody like me who happens to be a single parent um, able to afford to do uh, this particular job. Well, let me follow up on that, because it's always difficult when a when an elected MPP wants to change jobs at any point during the course of a mandate. But of course, you just asked your electors only seven months ago to send you back to Queen's Park, and they did. So I wonder, uh, you know, there's going to be some people out there who are wondering, we just sent her back there. Why is she leaving already? Well, you know what? And it's a it's a fair question. I think um, part of Part of the challenge for me is from day one, I was fighting to try and ensure that I would have childcare that was safe for my kids when I was in Toronto, when Queen's Park was sitting. Um, That was happening in 2018. And right before the 2022 election, what folks don't know was that I was actually telling the party, I don't think I can run. Like if if this is what is happening with the childcare, then I can't do it. It's not fair. Um, But we were pushing internally to try and see if there was a way to have childcare for somebody like me who lives outside of Toronto, who doesn't have other people that can watch the kids and the kids are too young um, to just sort of be on their own. That would be a whole other kind of new story. Um, And so uh, they we were hopeful that we would be able to change something. Um, But by the time I had filed my taxes, which was all around the same time as the election, it turned out that the last version of childcare support um, meant that I I had all of this extra taxable income and I owed the government just a little over 6,000. And what I was told was that on average with the parliamentary schedule, I would always owe 6,000 to $8,000 a year. Um, and this was about the fifth version of childcare support because it turns out that nobody at Queen's Park had ever asked for this, um, which leads me to the whole uh, discussion that I've been having um, around equity and representation and who it is that can afford to be our elected officials. Because for somebody like me, who's just an everyday person who happens to be a single parent, I don't have that in my back pocket. Like we all thought we could just solve the problem. Um, but now we see that sometimes when the rules aren't made for certain folks, hey, I'm going to quote her again. In the words of Beyonce, the system was not ready for this jelly. <laughs> <laughs> Every time. Got to slip Beyonce in there. Uh, there will be those, however, who interpret this as um, a lack of faith in Marit Stiles, the, the party's incoming new leader, and, and her ability to win the next election. Uh, would that be an accurate impression? No, actually, it would be completely inaccurate. Um, the fight for childcare for me has literally been part and parcel of my running. So the interesting thing is that um, there were so many different things that were happening, I think, during that first session, during those, none of us thought that we'd get elected in 2018 and be navigating a pandemic. And so with the, in the midst of everything that we were actually fighting as elected officials, there wasn't really a space or time for me to talk to folks um, more formally about the uh, issues around the childcare. But literally, my election team had to worry about childcare 
childcare because how am I supposed to be door knocking at those hours or doing late um, debates without having somebody helping me with the kids? Um, the party knew that this was the case. It had always been the case. This has been an ongoing fight that just happens to have come to a head at the exact same time that the leadership is changing, which to be honest, also breaks my heart because when you have a shift in leadership, there's an opportunity um, to speak differently about the kind of work that we're going to do, not just at Queen's Park, but like our vision for the province. And I have all of these people who saw me um, as a Black representative, as a, a female representative, when we're also losing a lot of women who are running for office, um, as a single parent. I didn't even realize that that was something that people um, we're sort of holding on to, but I've had single parents uh, in town that have stopped me and said, wow, you see things differently because you understand what it's like when childcare rises and you're a single parent. Um, sometimes you, you, every day is a mystery as to how you're going to navigate that day, right? For your little ones. Um, but unfortunately I had to weigh the pros and cons and what I was able to manage. And this just wasn't, it wasn't in the cards. Uh, we mentioned uh, Bill 67, or now Bill 16, the Racial Equity in the Education System Act. Uh, how important is it that this passes before the end of the session? Um, to all of the racialized folks who are navigating racism in the school system, they think it is urgently necessary to have this pass, right? Um, we we had it, we came so far with it in the last session. Um, it got into committee, and then it wasn't called by the government in committee, and so it sort of to died there. Um, we don't know if the government will support it in the same way, because the reality is, um, after it passes, I've often said, I think people loved me for about three days. And then after that, other folks were not so pleased with the uh, anti-racism work we were trying to do in the school system. When I was doing this the first time round, I had the support of Black Caucus, of course. So Jill Andrew would have been in support of me tabling the bill. But it was me that was holding carriage of the bill, which meant a lot of the weight of making such a big shift in the education system was on my shoulders and on the shoulders of my team. Um, but this time round, that weight is shared, which I think is really important to note, because it's not just about one um, one MPP in one particular riding, but it's about um, somebody who's in the north, there's somebody who's in Toronto, and then there's me out here in Waterloo Region, who are experiencing um, constituents coming and telling us about what racism looks like within their the education system for them. And everybody has said, this is something that we support, we need to make these changes. So, uh, so people can feel safe. You just mentioned the Black Caucus, and I, I want to follow up on that because you and some of your colleagues established what I think was the first ever so-called Black Caucus set up uh, by the New Democrats at Queen's Park. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess I want to know, what are we now, four and a half years in, what do you think it achieved? Um, that is such an important question. I've actually had a number of people who have emailed me and talked about the importance of the Black Caucus. Um, on the one hand, there's the mere fact that we as Black members uh, at Queen's Park were able to bring attention to the impact of literally any piece of legislation um, on Black communities. So we could be talking about housing, but let's talk about the fact that um, Black community members 
workers in, in ridings across the province are particularly impacted by poverty and then are particularly impacted by that housing crisis. Um, or during the pandemic, uh, we were seeing that Ontario health teams across the province, all of the, the public health units were producing these reports and finding that a lot of these hotspots um, were places where Black community members lived and they were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic and they weren't receiving any kind of targeted support um, near the beginning of the pandemic. It was because the Black Caucus existed that we were able to stand up at Queen's Park and fight for um, targeted support, um, that we were able to talk about the importance of food security, not just in general terms across the province, but um, specifically uh, as it relates to Black community members who are struggling. The federal government did just uh, announce this $10 a day childcare program with Ontario, part of this uh, historic national program that they've been building uh, since last year, obviously. Uh, but that just as obviously doesn't seem to have solved your concerns with childcare. What more needs to be done for MPPs to help resolve these childcare issues? Um, so I think there's two separate tangents that I have to go on, and I'll try and be quick. The first is when the federal government announces um, a federal plan, the strategy has to be accepted by each of the provinces. And I think what we were seeing in Ontario is that as much as the federal government said, this is what we should be doing, as much as the child care advocates were saying, this is what we need to do, as much as the um, the women across the province were saying, like, this is important to us if we want to address sexism in all these ty types of systems. Um, the government was sort of slow to act. And so we're still trying to figure out exactly what that's going to look like on the ground. But for me, the issue was slightly different. Um, because of how far away from Queen's Park I live, when Queen's Park is in session, I'm sleeping over in Toronto. And so Overnight childcare is very different than the $10 a day childcare. Um, somebody who does overnight childcare uh, has to literally be responsible, not just for what happens when the kids are sleeping, but during the day when I'm not at, at home, if one of my kids is sick, they're sort of on call during that period. Um, and so what was required for me more than anything was to recognize that if a housing benefit is available for MPPs, which means that you're acknowledging that it's not fair for me to or equitable for me to have property that I'm paying for a residence in Toronto, as well as a residence in my riding for me in Kitchener Centre, um, then childcare that might also have to happen should also be taken taken into account. And so it was kind of interesting because when the childcare issue came up, I think that's why everybody just thought it could be solved. Um, I kept saying like, if you're, if you're telling me that there is a place for me to stay when I'm in Toronto, who do you plan on raising my children? I did hear through, um, through the grapevine that somebody asked, well, where is her husband? Like that was their starting point. And so if your starting point is, where is my husband? I have many questions. Again, those could be many, many shows. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, everything that happens to MPPs is legislated. And so the solution is also going to have to be legislated. And I, my hope is that people will see this um, as an important enough issue to, to have it legislated because in the public's eye, they wanted me there. And they all knew that I was a single parent, you know? 
I'm inferring from your comments, though, that if this child care issue had been able to be resolved, you wouldn't be leaving Queen's Park, which means you didn't want to leave the job to begin with. So I do have to ask, when the kids are older, can you imagine coming back to politics? Well, it's funny. I've been thinking a lot about it. I am, um, again, the job is, it is a challenging uh, role to play in the community. Um, but when people trust you, I think it's something that you kind of, it's, you're called to to do it, right? Um, and I think over the course of the, like I'm in my fifth year right now, um, I've been able to forge relationships with community members, not just locally, but across the province who have trusted me with my critic portfolios um, that have entrusted me with their care when something has gone wrong. And so um, as my kids grow and as things shift, who knows? Knows. Maybe my name will be on a ballot again. Hopefully people will still, you know, like the the way I roll. But uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens. Well, if you get that endorsement from Beyonce, which you've been <laughs> desperate for over these years, uh, maybe it could happen. Let me do one quick follow up on this. And that is that uh, for those who don't know, your uncle, Alvin Curling, was the first ever black cabinet minister in Ontario history with the liberals back in the uh, mid 1980s. When you told him that you were stepping away from public life and for the reasons, what was his reaction? Well, you know what the funny thing is, I haven't had a chance to have a conversation with Uncle Alvin. So the other piece um, in my statement that I had explained to folks was that it was a combination of the system and the personal. So at the same time that I was having to sort of figure out what I was going to do to navigate the system, my father's health was getting increasingly worse. And um and so at the beginning of this session, I was actually spending a lot of time trying to care for my dad, who lives out in Niagara Falls. Um, and then by November, he had passed November 12th. Um, and Uncle Alvin and I were in touch quite a lot uh, during that period, just to give him updates about what was going on with daddy, etc. And then everything else just sort of happened so quickly that I didn't have a chance to really sit down and talk to him. I lost a cousin just a couple days after my dad as well. And so it was just, I think everything was, everything was coming to a head at the same time. And as I've said before, when you've got real life, um, sort of smack you upside the head, you have very limited time to start thinking about what you want to do, how you want to do it, where you want to use your energy, um, you're reminded about how finite uh, your time in this space is. Uh, and I just wanted to make sure that I used as much of my energy um, while I am healthy and strong and still present, or as my brother says, upright, um, to uh, to do as much community work as I can. And in this particular role, I was being sort of limited in what I could do for folks. So he will hear here and then he will call me. And then we will chat. Happy to be of service. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> and that is the On Poly podcast for January 24th, 2023. Don't forget to check out our weekly On Poly newsletter. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash newsletters. This week, JMM and I riff on about what the NDP, under their new leader, Marit Stiles, have to do to truly be considered a government-in-waiting and alternative to the Ford Tories. Any feedback you have, we're happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Shahir Tajvidi. 
Production support from Nikki Ashworth, Carla Lucetta, and Jonathan Hallowell. COVID is not over yet, people, as I don't have to remind anyone in the McGrath household. So let's remember, as my dad likes to say, John Michael, stay positive, test negative. Have a good week, Steve. I'm going to go reacquaint myself with my PlayStation. (laughs) (laughs) Take care, pal. See you next week.